I think spiders are gross, but even I'm excited for today's show. That's because we're talking about spiders in space. If you follow me on Twitter or listen to this show, you know that I'm always interested in what questions you have about space. I get a ton of really thoughtful stuff from you, so I decided to put your questions up to a listener vote and see what you all wanted answered next. We'll do another voting round soon, so be sure to check spacecurious.show to vote or to submit more ideas for future episodes. But for now, the winner of the first voting round is Maureen Quarrel. I wanted to get her on the phone to talk about her question, but I was heartbroken to hear she's battling cancer right now. All of us at WKMG are rooting for Maureen and her recovery and sending our best regards to her and her entire family. But Maureen did want to offer her daughter to come on the show to represent her in today's episode. I'm Emily Speck. This is Space Curious. So I'm Roxanne Mazzullo from Kissimmee, Florida, and um, I'm Maureen's daughter. Well, is she kind of uh, is she kind of a curious person? Does she like space? Like, tell me about her a little bit since she couldn't be here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, she's very curious about, um, life, uh, in other planets and aliens and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm like the opposite, but, um, no, she's just curious about the unknown, you know, like cool. what's out there. Yeah. Well, go ahead and I guess tell me what you think your mom's question was and, um, that way we'll have it. Years ago, a spider went, was sent to space to see if it could spin a web in zero gravity. Um, Okay, so where can we find out the results of experiments? We're going to take a meandering path to get to the spider. And to help us answer Roxanne and Maureen's question, meet Jamie Carrera. He's the chief creative officer for supercluster.com. So Supercluster itself was created essentially to serve the space fan. It was created by a, a bunch of space fans ourselves who found that it was too difficult to follow the story of space exploration, to find the people involved, to find when rockets were going to space, all those kinds of details. We often compare ourselves to ESPN, like we're the ESPN for space. And in the same way that you might want to go on there, let's say you're a baseball fan, you want to look at the stats of that pitcher, or you want to see how many three-pointers your favorite NBA star got to provide context for a story. We want to create that same kind of presence for space travelers, for astronauts, for researchers in the long term. One of my favorite parts of Supercluster is their database of all humans and non-humans who have been to space. So the astronaut database was a way to take all of the humans who had who had left uh, Earth and put them in one place, compare them, and start to connect those stories. And we also found um, that a lot of that story, really before humans went and even after they did, was about the animals that paved the way, the experimental creatures that, um, you know, some gave their lives, some uh, did not, but it was really that part of the story. You couldn't tell the story of astronauts without including that kind of stuff. Recent entrants to the database include NASA astronaut Victor Glover following his first spaceflight in the SpaceX Dragon spacecraft. Also, Glover's crewmates, Mike Hopkins, Shannon Walker, and Suichi Noguchi, but also a baby Yoda doll, which the SpaceX Crew-1 brought along with them. 
And so everyone saw it on the live stream of the launch. You know, the crew one launch was a big deal. And they saw this little guy float through the frame. And so people hit us up on social media and said, when are you adding Baby Yoda to the astronaut database? We do, by the way, have a section for robots and mannequins that has sort of a gray area in terms of who gets in there. That's pretty cool. Okay, so if I filter out humans, I can search by life form. And it, it's got a list, so it's got all, you got humans, fungus, insects, dogs, cats, micro creatures, primates, reptiles, amphibians, robots, mannequins, like you mentioned, rodents, fish, and shells. <laughs> yeah, so... the um, the categories are a little bit uh, editorial in the sense that we had to group them. They are not, you know, I, I fully surrender to my biology friends in this world. They are not categories that follow any particular biological distinction. We tried to generally gotcha. in the sense that like, yeah, dogs, cats and bats are all mammals. But right. you'll notice that, yes, yeah, so are humans. Through Superclusters database, I learned that 40 dogs have been to space. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the beginning of it all, of course, was was to try and create the the road for human space flight. So we jumped immediately to, you know, I think the first living things ever in space were some fruit flies in some capsule. But we jumped immediately to dogs and primates because we wanted to get close to, you know, a higher order uh, mammals to try and figure out, like, OK, can we send a person up there? There absolutely is no Gagarin or Shepard or Armstrong or Glenn or, or you know, um, Tereshkova or whoever we want to talk about as the, as the humans who paved the way for us in space, it never would have happened um, without the, the monkeys and apes and dogs in particular, in addition to all the other kind of animals that went up. Only one cat has ever achieved space flight. It was a cat named Felicette. It was trained by the French. They flew it to space and uh, no other cat has returned. So you can make your own conclusions about how easy it is to train a cat compared to a dog. Uh, but no one in history has tried to do that again. Or maybe the cat came back and just as a representative of all, all felines said, we're just going to opt out of this one. I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Too much stress. No one really yeah. asked the cat, you know, yeah, right. too high risk. Meanwhile, the dogs sent to orbit often become the pets of the scientists who trained them. The provenance of the space dogs, particularly the Soviet space dogs, is really interesting. Most of them were just street dogs because mm -hmm. they the logic being that if we pick up a mutt on the street, it'll probably be more hardy, both genetically and in its attitude. It'll be more able to deal with different stimuli and unusual situations. Actually, I should warn you, this next piece of information might be triggering if you've recently lost a pet. Just fast forward the next 20 seconds or so if you want to skip it. The first dog sent to orbit by the Soviets actually did not return alive. Please forgive us, said Russian biologist Adilia Kotovskaya as she wept and stroked Laika the dog before sending her off into space. The little street dog could never have known the importance of what she was about to do. Sixty years ago, she became the first living thing ever to orbit the Earth. Sadly, it was only ever to be a one-way trip, with Laika surviving just a few hours and traveling around the world nine times before a failure in the Soviet spacecraft meant she overheated and died. Laika was found on the streets like all of the dogs in the space program. Bitches were apparently always chosen, as they didn't need to lift their leg to urinate, thus needing less room in the spacecraft. But Laika's martyrdom hasn't been forgotten, her sacrifice paving the way for manned spaceflight. In fact, the record uh, for most space flights by a living thing is shared by two humans and a dog. Because in the Soviet era, there was a dog that flew seven times and no human has beat that record yet. 
Jamie and his team have photos of most of the animals featured. Some of the dogs even have little spacesuits on. Fast forward about 50 years past the first achievements in human spaceflight. Animals that now go to space stay on the International Space Station as part of ongoing research happening inside the orbiting laboratory. In the animal world, frequently it's not recorded even specifically as we launched an animal to space, For um, particularly in the insect category. Many of the entries you're seeing in here are drawn from research papers where we know that an experiment was done in space, and then we go to the research paper to find out the population of insects that that experiment was run on that thereby would have been in the you know, experiment platform on the ISS or the shuttle or whatever it was. And so some of these entries, you'll see like 15 harvester ants that most likely was recorded as part of an experiment. And then we go in and find that that's what had to be there. Um, so some of these are really kind of um, obscure in, in what we had to do to get them. But in contrast to that, the spiders were actually fairly well publicized. One of these famous spiders was Nefertiti the spider knot a red-backed jumping spider, and one of the insects our listener, Maureen, wanted to know what happened to. An 18-year-old student from Egypt wanted to know if a jumping spider would be able to catch its prey in zero gravity. It turned out that she could, no problem. The other experiment, which I think you guys want to take a look at, if we can get it, the camera to focus, is, uh, of course, our little Nefertiti here. Let's see if she can get in focus. Hold on. Can you see her? She's pretty in, she's in focus, yeah. After launching from Japan on a cargo supply mission to the ISS, NASA astronaut Suni Williams oversaw Nefertiti's experiment and described her jumping after her prey. I think she's been eating well. <laughs> but every now and then, of course, I took her and Cleopatra out and fed them, you know, by opening the plungers and opening so more fruit flies would come out. And one day I was doing that, I had the light on like this, because as you know, um, they hunt in the daytime, and I wanted to take a look and see if I could see her. And my gosh, I saw her stalking a fruit fly, unbeknownst to that poor little fruit fly. And she was looking at it, and she was going real close, and all of a sudden she jumped right on her. So it was amazing. And so I think the spiders absolutely um, adapted to space. It was incredible to watch. That was something I learned looking at the database. I, I've known that a lot of insects have gone to space, but I didn't know some of them had names. <laughs> so when I specifically looked for spiders, I was like, Anita, a spider. She's a, a garden spider. What's That's interesting. <laughs> were oh, you, yeah. What were some of the things that you kind of learned while you were building the database? Was that something that surprised you or... Yeah, I mean, d definitely. The, I didn't know about any of the spider stories. I suppose I assumed that there was one, but um, the spiders in particular was interesting because of the way they reacted. Um, you know, for instance, Nefertiti, who was a, one of the more famous spiders known as the spider knot, um, was a jumping spider. And this is typically the type of spider that will wait passively for prey to pass by and then use a very quick attack to just grab it and then spin it up and, and, and dine. But uh, in zero G, the jumping spider had to immediately adapt to this idea that it was in zero gravity. And apparently it did not have a lot of problems. Hmm. They gave it little bugs to eat and it was able to sort of 
conformance behaviors to three dimensions, you know, to move through space um, and didn't have much of a problem. So it's really interesting the way that they adapted and, and also the way that they wove webs was affected. You know, we're guessing that they use gravity for some kind of orientation factor. And when you take that away, the webs were still effective, but were much more random. Do you know, or did you learn from kind of looking at these papers and the research, what happened to some of the insects or after spaceflight? Do they continue surviving in a lab or what? Yeah, um, I, I don't know specifically. I can tell you for a lot of the insects that are, um, that are scientifically useful, they don't have a long lifespan, like a fruit fly is you know yeah. days or weeks and, that, and that's it yeah <laughs> so i think in, in a lot of cases they probably just died naturally at the conclusion of the experiment nefertiti was only expected to have a lifespan for about a year she lived for 10 months when she died in december 2012 nasa wrote a moving obituary for the jumping spider here are a couple lines nefertiti didn't spin a web like charlotte her kind never could but the red-backed jumping spider earned a classy nickname, Spider-Knot, as well as a bunk at the popular insect zoo of the National Museum of History of Washington for her out-of-this-world exploits. Her move to the nation's capital in late November followed a 100-day mission aboard the International Space Station. There, Nefertiti demonstrated that, like humans, her eight-legged species can adapt to the microgravity of space and then transition back to life on Earth. Our gal Nefertiti is far from the only arachnid to visit the space station, and definitely not the last insect or mammal to achieve spaceflight. In fact, the first organism to ever reproduce in space was a cockroach. They had cockroaches oh. giving birth in space. Yeah, to see if it could, because obviously gestation is a huge question. We have no idea how, you know, no complex uh, animal has gone through its full reproductive cycle in space beyond like a cockroach, you know, or, or Somehow I think that's also... not surprising to me. I feel like once we're dead and gone, cockroaches will still live on and it doesn't surprise me that they can reproduce in space. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, after the nuclear winter, they're, they're still going to be rocking and rolling. <laughs> but there is also something so simple and human, if that's the right word, about sending animals and insects to space. There's a story, I forget in particular what flight it was, but they were sending some dogs up and they were going to do a rendezvous where another spacecraft flies by. And they're waiting to get the signal that the other one had gotten close. And that would mean that the rendezvous was working. But before they got the signal, the first thing that they noticed was that the dogs in the capsule were barking because they had seen the capsule outside the window. And they were like, oh, oh my God, there it is. So like a dog with a mailman or the delivery truck or whatever, there was just this truth to that of like, oh yeah, we sent dogs to space and they're still dogs. They're still doing <laughs> dog stuff just in this crazy context, barking down a mission control. Look, there's someone at the window. Who is that? And they're oh, protecting so their funny. spaceship. I've posted a link to the Supercluster database on our website, spacecurious.show. Knock yourself out like I did learning about all the humans and creatures who've been to space. If you've got a question or a story idea, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at emspec or submit your idea on the homepage at spacecurious.show. This episode was produced and edited by Zach Rosen and myself. Thank you to Jamie Carrera with Supercluster for helping us break down this fascinating topic. And a special thank you to Maureen Coral, who inspired this episode with her curiosity about the little creatures and experiments. 
Until next time, stay curious.